there are four things that, that, stand, that tend to stick out as kind of some sub-themes uh, of this text. And, and those four things uh, are idolatry, immorality, impurity, and inhumanity, going against the nature uh, that God intended for His people. And we're going to be seeing these four themes uh, continually coming up uh, in the sections that we have. So let's go ahead and jump in uh, to verse 18 a little bit further. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And if this were a smaller class, uh, the first question that I would ask is, uh, what does the wrath of God mean to you? What does the wrath of God mean to you? And I think we would get a wide variety of answers. I think uh, we would get some answers that, um, you know, that maybe you know, we're really contingent upon, um, you know, kind of this view of God as being angry or distant or this hardened view of God. Uh, we might get some answers that uh, were the exact opposite of that. And, and you know, we're all about uh, God's love and his care for his people and uh, would almost deny the fact that uh, wrath was uh, a characteristic that uh, that is mentioned about God in scripture or something that uh, he displays uh, towards evil, and we might uh, find some answers that are, are kind of in the middle. And so what does uh, the wrath of God uh, really mean? I'd like to, to put out there tonight that uh, the book of Romans really hinges upon an understanding of the role of wrath and the understanding of just how much that God hates evil and just how much that God wants to rescue uh, his people from sin. And if this book is going to be about this reconciliation project, uh, Paul goes into great detail to describe just what we're being reconciled from. If you will, uh, go to that next slide. I like the way that James Bryan Smith puts it. The narrative of a God who does not care about sin naturally undermines the entire Christian story. God demonstrates wrath towards sin. There is judgment in God's kingdom, and there is a need for Jesus to die on the cross. The non-wrathful God is powerless against the darkness. As strange as it may sound, in my understanding, the wrath of God is a beautiful part of the majesty and love of God. And I think that's what Paul wants us to get uh, in this passage, to see how much of this wrath is really an expression of his love. It's really an expression of how much he wants to rid us of the evil uh, that has come as a result of the fall. So let's keep reading. Let's go to the next slide. So we've got these two words here. We have godlessness and wickedness. And and I don't know if this is a good explanation of the two. I, I put this together this week. And if I were to guess why uh, the two are emphasized, I mean, godlessness is is pretty obvious. You know, it's the absence of God. Uh, and that describes, you know, this vertical relationship maybe that we have with him, uh, that we've detached fully uh, from that and pursued uh, other things. And so we've got this disregard for God. Uh, but I think wickedness is when this disregard from God manifests itself in our actions and how this vertical relationship being severed uh, plays out. And we see that uh, this ends up harming our relationships with other people. And so the separation that we see is really um, kind of on what we read in the greatest command. We're disconnecting from our love of God and we're disconnecting from our love of others uh, when we embrace godlessness and wickedness. So let's keep going. 
Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And we could spend the rest of the time right here. Uh, we could spend the rest of the time talking about uh, the apologetic of creation. And uh, I know there's a class on Wednesday or on Sunday nights that's talking a lot about uh, apologetics and about the role that creation plays in our faith. Uh, but we could look at, you know, exploring what these invisible qualities are, this eternal power, uh, this divine nature, uh, how we're supposed to see them and the role that they play uh, in our lives. And, and I, there's a lot of different uh, commentators that, that had views on this, but the two that were maybe uh, the most prevalent that I saw to describe uh, maybe the role that these plays uh, that these two characteristics play is this idea of an innate knowledge of God, a sense of the divine or an inherent awareness of God's being that connects immediately with human existence. This idea that we're all hardwired with this knowledge of God in some way or another. We may not fully understand it, but there's something in us that points to there being something bigger than just us. Uh, that might be one explanation for uh, what's being described here. And the second is about the role of creation itself, and it's described as kind of a derivative knowledge of God. Uh, this knowledge of God that can be inferred from the immensity, order, and beauty of creation itself. And I think we've all experienced probably both of these in our lives. We've all experienced maybe that inner sense that there's something more going on. And, you know, I'm a part of a bigger story, and it's not just this random thing that happened. There's a bigger uh, creator behind the world that we live in. And I know we've probably all experienced the second one too, when we've witnessed creation in a way that we step back and go, there has to be a God, or it's made an incredibly profound impact on us. But nevertheless, you know, God says it's plain to them. It's something that they've seen, something they should understand, and something that they should know. So let's go to verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so in this, we see that, you know, this plain, uh, this, this creation understanding that God desires for His people to, to know Him through, they knew. You know, this is something that uh, we're going to see that the people that he's writing about chose consciously to ignore the God uh, that they knew. For they knew God, but they didn't glorify Him, and they didn't give thanks. And so as a result, their mind became futile and their hearts were darkened. What does it look like for someone's heart to be darkened or their mind to become futile? Let's skip two slides up, if you will, uh, Tim. To the, There we go. So I found this, and I think it describes it well. It says, Sin infects the mind to such a degree that human reasoning assumes a default position that is hostile to God. People prefer to be stupefied by their sin rather than immerse themselves in God's majesty. People savor the dementia of evil over the joy of worshiping their Creator. Uh, People would rather be so... Uh, entrenched in the world that they don't even acknowledge uh, who God is. And this tends to have this kind of uh, continuing effect, this transformative effect. The further we get from God, uh, the harder it is for us to see Him, and the more entrenched we become in these evil acts, which we're going to see as we continue reading. So let's keep going in the text. It says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like 
mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And so, you know, if we're, if we're not careful, you know, this is where we might could check out and be like, okay, you know, I don't have uh, an image of a bird or an animal or a reptile. This isn't talking to me. You know, I'm okay. Uh, but this is talking about two different types of idolatry here. This is talking about this conceptual idolatry, uh, which refers to any system of thought uh, which the individual or community takes to be a visible rendering of God. So we've got this conceptual idolatry here, and we also have this aesthetic idolatry, uh, which is the creation of a physical thing uh, to replace God. And we see both uh, being represented in this passage. And so maybe in our Western world, uh, we don't maybe fall in love or put worship towards physical things per se, as we might picture uh, in the Old Testament, but we definitely worship ideas. And we definitely worship the manifestation of of value systems and different narratives uh, that that can become real uh, and true idols in our lives. And so we've chosen to exchange uh, these things. So exchange is going to be the word uh, that we continue seeing throughout this text. And we're going to see exchange over and over. So we're going to come back to it uh, in just a second. If you will, go to that. There we go. So what happens when people refuse to acknowledge and depend on God as God? We don't stop worshiping. We simply change the object of our worship. Uh, And this is something that, you know, I think we struggle with sometimes in our society when we use some of these terms to uh, define people as either uh, those that believe in God or those who don't believe in God. Uh, I, I would argue that there is no such thing as a person that doesn't believe in God. Uh, everyone believes in some type of God, whether that God uh, is a particular uh, conception of the world or is a particular uh, view of how success or happiness happens or whatever. Everybody has put their life towards a particular view. And so when we think about this, it's just which God do we serve? And it, show, it talks about uh, the prevalence of idolatry. Let's keep going. Let's go to verse uh, 24. It says, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. You know, it's an interesting, this therefore is connected to idolatry, right? We see this description of idolatry. Uh, they've chosen to worship either these images of God or these physical representations of God. And therefore, God gave them over to these sinful desires, these desires of sexual impurity. That might seem like kind of a weird connection. Uh, you know, why did this one thing lead to another? And, and really what this text is kind of telling us is so many of these things that are against who God is always start when someone chooses to not recognize God as who God is. When someone chooses to either place themselves in the role of God or place something else in the role of God, then immediately these other things that are against God's will uh, continue to happen. And so we see this connection here uh, between the spiritual and the sexual, this connection between uh, you know, not only what's going on in our minds and our hearts, but this extends to the body. And so we're seeing this holistic um, kind of refusal of adopting the ways of God. Daryl Tippins, who teaches at ACU, says, A better theology and a better psychology shows us how to believe with our minds while at the same time believing in and through our bodies. This approach reflects how heart, mind, and soul are intimately and inevitably bound together in the worldviews of the biblical writers. 
just like in the greatest command, just like in the Shema, this holistic picture of discipleship is all throughout Scripture. And so this holistic picture we're getting here in Romans 1 of lack of discipleship uh, encompasses each one of these things, heart, mind, soul, and the body are each being uh, a part of rejecting God. And so in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So let's talk about this word exchange. It's a word we all know. It's a word that we use on the regular. Uh, but sometimes it helps to, to go back and, and just look at the definition of the word exchange. Uh, exchange is the act of giving or taking one thing in return for another. Or a secondary definition of exchange, to part with, give, or transfer in consideration of something received as an equivalent, right? And so at the, at the root of exchange is free will, right? If something was taken from you, it wouldn't be called an exchange. Um, if something was replaced without your knowledge, it wouldn't be called an exchange. Uh, but throughout this text, we see the word exchange over and over because it's a choice that the people are making, This is a conscious choice, and it's also a conscious determination of value. Uh, They're looking at what they have, and they're choosing to trade it for something else. Uh, They're looking at the way that God offers them, and they're saying, we see this way, we know this way, you've shown it to us in such a plain way that we couldn't help but understand, but we're going to take it, and we're going to trade it for something else anyway. And in this passage we're about to get to, uh, about these displaced uh, kind of sexual nature uh, section of the scripture, the word exchange is right in the middle of it. Uh, this is a conscious choice that we're about to read about. This is a choice that acknowledges who God is and chooses to go apart from the way uh, that he designed. And so in verse 26, it says, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. We see that phrase, God gave them over twice uh, in this section. And to me, this highlights that free will that we're talking about. Uh, God lets them make this choice. You know, God has shown them himself fully. There's nothing that they can deny. It says they knew him, uh, but yet they chose something else. And God let them do it. It says God gave them over to this. And so when you really think about it, this is pretty similar to, you know, what happened in the garden. You know, God tells them everything. He tells them what's going to happen. He paints for them a picture of what life with him could be and what he desired that relationship to look like. He gave Adam and Eve clear parameters for how they could stay in that relationship with him. Uh, But yet he gives them the free will uh, to make the choice not to be with him. Uh, He gives them the free will to choose to go uh, a different route Uh, than he desires. When you really think about it, the course of human history has shown that the essential problem with man is unchanged. The temptation for Adam Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was, you will be like God. And although most people would not admit or recognize that they view themselves as God-like or want to be their own God, almost all of us act like we are. And so as we begin to look at these examples that he gives of people who have chosen to go against God's plan, you know, each time we make that choice, you know, we're implicitly saying that we know better than God, uh, that we have chosen a way that we deem to be better than the way that God designed for us. And and that's what we begin to see uh, being played out here at the end of Romans. And so when we think about sexual sin, 
Uh, sexual sin is always something that comes out of this choice of, of I know better, right? God has described for us a way uh, for sex to be a gift from him. He's described for us a way in which it's a God-honoring uh, it's a God-honoring relationship. Uh, he's described for us a way in which we can use uh, this as a way to connect with someone else and with God. Uh, but when we choose to sin sexually, it's always an act of saying, I know better than you, God. Uh, I'm going to choose to go about this in a different way. And so it could be said the heart of sexual sin uh, is always this selfishness. So let's keep reading. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so the illustration uh, or the example that we see here uh, is a creation example and not a cultural example. And um, we're going to look at that a little bit more here in a second. Uh, but when we read this, you know, what God is comparing this to, uh, what God is using as the reason that this is uh, not acceptable is it goes against uh, nature. It goes against what is natural. It goes against uh, what God intended for his people. Uh, and so we see this being brought back to creation and the creation story itself. I'd like to read two thoughts uh, from a theologian named Preston Sprinkle that I think describe uh, what's going on here uh, really well. And it, the first one is, is more about uh, the passage of Romans 1 in general, and then the second gets into the cultural nature that Paul is maybe dealing with. It says, Mankind has departed from God's original intention, the way that God designed them to be as gendered humans. Notice the pattern of exchange in Roman 1, in Romans 1. Humankind exchanges the Creator for creation. Female exchange sexual relations with males for females. Males exchange sexual relations with females for males. All of this seems to stem from a departure of the way God designed us as seen in Genesis 1 and 2. And so over and over, this exchange, this free will, this idea that we know better than God, that we're going to embrace a different path than the one that God has laid out for us. And so Paul is speaking to a group of Romans here. A group of people that come from a Gentile understanding, most of his audience that come from what might even be considered to be a pagan background. Uh, and for the Jews, you know, when Paul is writing this out, you know, most of his Jewish audience would have been like, we know that, Paul. Uh, this is something that's been laid out for us clearly in the Old Testament. This is something that, that we don't necessarily have any type of confusion about. Uh, you know, God laid this out very explicitly for us. Uh, but for the Gentile audience, you know, this is something that uh, would have gone against some of the cultural norms of the time. And yet Paul chooses not to use a cultural example of why uh, this was wrong. If Paul situates the same sex relations in Romans 1, 26 and 27 in the context of departing from the creator's intention, then this suggests that Paul's words are not limited to some cultural way of behaving. That is, Paul doesn't say that certain types of same-sex relations were taboo in this Greek, in this Greco-Roman environment, and therefore they are wrong. He says or seems to assume that what is wrong with same-sex relations transcends culture. Violating God-given gender boundaries is universal and absolute. They go against the way God created males and females and intended them to relate to each other sexually. And so that's one of the powerful things about this passage 
is it's written in a way that is meant to apply to all people and all cultures and all times of you know how God desired from the beginning in creation uh, for people to uh, relate with each other. And we're going to see a little bit uh, at the end of this passage about how to live in a culture that, uh, that maybe doesn't adopt uh, these same principles today. So let's see where it goes. Let's see this other furthermore, this, this word to say, you know, in addition to, uh, and I'm running out of time, I realize, but let's, we'll finish up real quick. Furthermore, in addition to, to losing sight of how God intended for them to function, it says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they ought not to be done. So they did what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, and they invented ways of doing evil. And they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, that they not only approve and continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. So we've got this huge list, right? And so if we were to ever think that we didn't fall uh, as a part of this depravity because of the, you know, the type of sexual um, illustration here is maybe not one that applies uh, to a struggle in our lives or it might, uh, but he gives all these other things that represent this depravity. And when we get to Romans 3, uh, this is going to be brought in even more that all have fallen short uh, of the glory of God. But he says here, you know, not only did the people do these things, uh, even though they knew what God's righteous decree was, he says something to those of us who affirm those things. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Man, that's a tough way to end the text. And that's a way that, you know, is very relevant for our current culture. So many of these things that are mentioned, you know, not only about sexual relationships, but in this list are, are put forth as, you know, as quality ways to live in our culture or values that lead to success or happiness or provide an outlet uh, for moving up in our society in different ways. And so not only are Christians uh, supposed to, you know, not engage in those type of things, they're supposed to have the same view that God does towards things that are outside of, of his natural plan for how people should interact with him uh, and interact with each other. So I'm sorry, I'm right up against it. So I'll pray real quick and, and we'll release uh, everyone to pick up uh, your kids. Lord, we thank you for the scripture that you've given us. We thank you for uh, your willingness to tell your truth to us. Uh, we thank you for your created order, the way that you intended uh, for all of us to interact with you. Uh, we thank you for the way that you intended for us to interact with each other. Uh, we ask that we're constantly looking to uh, to be a part of that reconciliation to, to what you intended. Uh, we ask that you be with us the rest of the week as we seek to serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.